Most of you know that uh, one of my favorite things to do in the world is to bird hunt. I love to, I love to hunt quail, love to hunt pheasant, love to be with bird dogs. I just, I absolutely love to bird hunt. And so when I was a pastor in northwestern Oklahoma 20 years ago, I mean, I was in heaven. I, I could just roll out and go hunting just about any time I, I wanted to. And one day on my day off, I decided I was going to hunt a huge piece of state land about where the panhandle hooks onto the rest of Oklahoma, about two hours west of where I was. So I loaded up my gun and all my tools and, and my bird dog, Holly. It's a moment of silence for my bird dog, Holly, who I'm sure is in heaven now. I don't know about the theology works, but I'm sure. Anyway, and we drove out there. And because I'd never been on this land and because it was so big... I wanted a map, so I stopped at the field office, grabbed a map, drove to where I was going to park, and looked at the map, and it showed me where some landmarks were, and so it said there was a windmill about a half mile from me, and I looked out in the distance, and I saw that windmill, got Holly out of the truck, got my stuff on, off we went to go hunting. Pretty quickly after we got out of the truck, and this wasn't common, but pretty quickly after we got out of the truck, we got into a little covey of quail, and uh, between Holly Point and birds and me shooting and mostly missing uh, the birds that got up, uh, I did not notice that I wasn't walking a straight line to that windmill. I was doing what my bird hunting buddy, Eddie, uh, Ed, uh, out in western Oklahoma, would call a, a razoo. I, I, I made a loop, thought I was going a straight line, made a, made a loop, which is no big deal. I made it the windmill, except that on the way back to the truck, I went to that windmill after a long day of hunting, and I thought, my truck's over there, because that's the direction I walked into the windmill from. Turns out my truck was over here. It took us about an hour to be able to find the truck again, and I'm, I'm not saying I panicked, but I was deeply concerned uh, there for a while. They were going to lock the gate to the wildlife management area at 430. I was, I was hungry and needed uh, some water. Uh, Holly, the bird dog, was hungry and needed some water, and uh, it was dicey there for a little bit. We were a little nervous, and it was because we lost sight of our landmark that helped us understand how to get back home. Well, the last part of the book of Revelation takes us into wild and dangerous open country called the end times, and the author John is given a peek as to what to expect when God brings history to its conclusion. And, and, and that vision of what he has shown could very easily overwhelm anyone who would have seen it. It would have overwhelmed John's readers as they read about it and could have led them very easily to panic and terror. So before John is given a deeply unsettling vision of end times chaos, God provides him with his landmarks. He calibrates his compass, as it were, so that when he feels overwhelmed or when his readers feel overwhelmed, they can always find their way back home. And that calibration that they experience is the vision that we see in Revelation 4 and 5, which really should be read and experienced together. Before John wanders into Mordor, as it was, John is shown a vision of God on his throne. And we see today which is essentially the second part of a message we began last week, that that God who is victorious from the throne is the one who gives us the Son whose victory is the means of triumphing over everything that is about to unfold. 
Hope you have found Revelation 5 in your copy of God's Word. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word? Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then I looked, and I, I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. You really should read Revelation 4 and 5 together. They belong to one another. They are meant to be experienced in a unity, but because we don't have hour-long sermons at Blue Valley, uh, we needed to break them up together. And as you read them together, you notice that there is a shift from a focus on the one who sits on the throne to a focus of the Lamb standing before the throne, or in other words, a shift from a focus on God the Father to a shift to a focus on God the Son, on Jesus, and a shift from a focus of the Father's authority over all things to a a focus in the Son's victory over all things. But the pivot point in the vision that draws the two chapters together is the appearance of a scroll. In fact, it is the appearance of the scroll which provides the complicating factor, as it were, that drives the drama of the vision. So what is this scroll? I think it is best, though there is debate, it is best to understand that this scroll is what we read in Revelation 6 forward to really about chapter 19 of Revelation. The content of the scroll essentially is what we see in those chapters. It is therefore 
a scroll which contains the premeditated plan of God to bring all of the world to its conclusion. And when confronted with these cataclysmic events, as John is, we must, with John, learn to look to Jesus, specifically as illustrated in Revelation chapter 5 in three ways. First, in times of trouble, look to the person of Jesus. Now, John sees this scroll in the hands of the Father, the one seated on the throne, and notes that it's sealed with seven seals. Now, let's ask ourselves some questions about all of this before we move on. First, why is the scroll, which again, remember, represents the predetermined plan of God to bring all of history to its conclusion, why is it sealed in the first place? Well, the answer lies in the book of Daniel. Why don't you hold your place in Revelation chapter 5 and find the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. If you don't know how to find it, go to your table of contents. If you don't know where your table of contents is, ask an Awana kid next to you. They'll get you to Daniel, all right? But go to the book of Daniel. Now, the first half of this book in the Old Testament we're familiar with because it contains the children's stories. It talks to us about Daniel and the lion's den and the fiery furnace and all of those things that, that children are taught in Sunday school. But the rest of it is weird. I mean, just frankly, it's very, very weird. And it's fact, weird in ways that you can't see in English. Um, the, the second half of the book's written in Aramaic, not Hebrew, which is uh, very, very strange uh, in, in, in Old Testament writings. It's just different all the way around. But the reason that it is different and weird ultimately is for the reasons that Revelation feels different and weird. God is showing Daniel what will uh, precipitate the coming of Christ in Bethlehem and then what will transpire after that, and John is being shown the same part of that, what will transpire after that. And so as the book draws to a close, Daniel's given these instructions regarding his vision in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people will be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And then Daniel turns into one of us. He says, well, when's all this going to happen? I mean, I'll seal it, but uh, when's it all going to happen? And he's not given any answer to that. He just simply has the instruction of verse 4 re reiterated. Look at verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So back to Revelation chapter 5. Why is this scroll sealed in the first place? Well, it's been sealed until it's time to unseal it, simply. And the time to unseal it is the time of the end. So now we ask the question, why is it sealed with seven seals? And it's simple to understand when we remember that 
numbers in the book of, of Revelation are always, always symbolic, and it's a means of telling us that it is ultimately God the Father himself who has sealed the scroll. That's why he's the one who is holding it. It will be up to him to determine when it can be unsealed and history's final chapter can play out. And this is why John laments. Who can possibly unseal something that God the Father himself has sealed? Who can possibly inaugurate history's final act? This is why John is weeping. Who could possibly be worthy of doing that? But then this happens. Once again, looking at verse 5 of Revelation 5, an elder speaks to him and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out onto all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Jesus is the one who is worthy to unseal that which God the Father has sealed. In response to John's weeping, the elder says three things about Christ which are incredibly important to us here. First, he calls Christ the Lion of Judah. Now, this finds its roots in a prophecy of the Old Testament person Jacob over his sons on his deathbed. It is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 through 10. And in that, he speaks of Judah being a lion. And the people of Israel began to view that prophecy as an expression that a future all-wise and all-powerful king would come from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is also designated by this elder as the root of David. This is less familiar to us. This comes from the prophecy of Isaiah 11, which says this messianic king who would come from the tribe of Judah would rise specifically from the lineage of David and would be mightily equipped to destroy all evil, deliver God's people from their affliction by evil powers, and establish a new order on earth in which peace and righteousness and blessedness would reign. The elder is telling John then that there is a king who is able to take the scroll, but not just any king. After the elder talks to John, John sees the king about whom the elder is talking. This is his first glimpse. And when the image of the lamb is first glimpsed in verse 6, he is seen standing between the throne and the four living creatures, signifying creation. If you'll remember last week, those four living creatures, this arrangement is a beautifully rich theological message which communicates essentially the truth of Colossians 1.17 where Paul writes, Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. Christ is what is ultimately holding all of creation together. Christ is the agent of creation. That's why he's standing by the four living creatures. But this is also very important. He is standing in the midst, in the midst of the elders the 24 elders, which represent the people of God. And this is a consistent picture in the book of Revelation. Christ is never seen apart from his church. He has never abandoned them. He's always with them. 
The 24 elders represent the people of God. So, uh, so when we see Christ in Revelation, he's not wondering where the church is. He hasn't misplaced the church. Uh, he's, he's in the church. He's uh, amidst the church. He is keeping the church together. And then the Lamb of verse 6, most importantly, is seen to have been standing as if slain. Now, these are mutually exclusive terms. In all of the sacrifices that have ever taken place throughout human history, none of them have ever said, okay, are we done? I'm going to get up and walk away until Easter. We know that Jesus triumphed over death. This is what this image represents. Verse 6 then notes that the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. The, the horn in the Old Testament imagery is representative of, of power, and the number of seven in, in John's revelation communicates in part full and complete power over all things, completeness. And so the horn represents his full and complete power over all things. And then the seven eyes, which John tells us are the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth, represent the lamb as being all present, all seeing, and all knowing. So this is Jesus. This is the Jesus, John says. If you ever get scared, if you ever lose your way, I want you to look here. A powerful and promised and preeminent over all things, including death itself, king. And this king is the one who goes and takes the scroll. One of the very worst things that the modern church has done with Jesus is tame him. Beyond recognition, scripturally. In fact, it's almost as if the message that you hear in churches today is here's how to keep Jesus on your leash, domesticate him so that he can do your bidding and periodically entertain you. But the Jesus of Revelation 5 is anything but tame. In fact, to quote Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's not even safe. But also, to quote Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he is good. He's not tame. He's not even safe. But he is good. That's why you can look to him. That's why he can keep your compass bearing straight in times of trouble. In times of trouble, look to the person of Jesus. And then also, in times of trouble, look to the work of Jesus. Something very important here. Look at verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed 
people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. It's very important here to see that heaven does not erupt in praise proclaiming, worthy are you because you are powerful. They do not erupt in praise saying, worthy are you because you are promised. They do not erupt in praise and say, worthy are you because you are preeminent. No, heaven erupts in praise saying, worthy are you for you were slain. The worth of Jesus is directly tied to the sacrifice of Jesus. The chorus of heaven proclaims that this slain lamb was worthy because by his blood, the blood of his body, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Let me ask you something here. Does everybody get along? I don't think so. Is everybody alike? I don't think so. And from that disparate, motley crew, he made a kingdom who are united in their allegiance to the one who is worthy. And he did this by ransoming them with his blood. Now, in our culture, ransom carries with it the connotation of being released from kidnapping. But the word ransom, when Revelation was written, had another meaning feeding it, actually a reference to being ransomed or redeemed, set free from slavery. It's an interesting pagan ritual associated with all this. Certain pagan cultures, a slave could purchase his or her freedom from bondage by depositing a set sum of money in the temple of their God, which their owner would receive, but under the guise that the slave had actually been sold to the God of the temple, and because of the price deposited, the God, once having purchased the slave, would set the slave free. This ritual is what lies behind the song to the Lamb's worth. We are slaves to sin and its consequences. But unlike the slaves in the ritual that I have described, none of us have the capacity to place something of ourselves on the altar before God and say, are we good? We have nothing to offer. No moral purity. No ritual. No Religiosity? Nothing. We have nothing to offer. But the blood of Jesus was sufficient to set us free. In other words, the lamb has a very particular set of skills which makes him a nightmare for sin. And because of that, we're set free. Let me ask you something. You feel trapped. Man, I do. Every time I put on, and I do it because I think it's the right thing to do, but every time I pull on, put on this stupid thing, I hate it. I mean, I feel bound by this. How many people have gotten out of your car and gone, and had to walk back? Everybody. This thing's like a boat anchor around you, and then because I wear glasses, when I put it on, I enter a fresh hell where I can't see anything at all. I fog up like a car on a cold morning. I've taken, to, taken my glasses off when I go in stores and 
and walking like this, just hoping I don't run into anything, because it's an, I feel trapped by this stupid thing. I feel trapped when I turn on the news. I just need it to be over. <laughs> All of it. I just want it to be over. And I wonder, when am I going to be free? And Revelation 5 tells me, you already are. The sin that Christ delivered you from by ransoming you with his own blood is the cause of sickness and geopolitical turmoil and all of it. And because of that, you've been set free. You've been made something different. And you can live in the reality of that or you can run back into bondage all the time on social media, internet, websites, news. The work of Jesus sets us free from sin, which should lead us to worship, which is the final thing that Revelation 5 tells us to do in times of trouble. It says, in times of trouble, look to the worth of Jesus. Again, back in Revelation 5, look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads. That sounds like a lot. Thousands of thousands. Sounds like a lot. With a loud voice, I bet, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every, that sounds like everything, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in it, that about covers it, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped in light of who Jesus is. All of heaven and all of creation says, what? Boom. And they worship. And they ascribe to him the worth that he is due. So how exactly does worship help us find our bearings in time of trouble? We alluded to it last week. The answer is obvious. Worship fixes our mind on Jesus. It causes us to set our mind on things above, not on things on the earth. When our minds are fixed on him, it pulls our troubles in this life out of just kind of a, a general kind of gunk and causes us to see them in their proper perspective. But it also does this, which we tend not to think about as much. It reminds us that whatever trouble we experience for his namesake is worth it. Because he's worthy, whatever for his sake is worth it. Christians in the Western world today live in borderline terror that there might come a day where their faith would actually cost them something more than an hour on Sunday morning. But this vision reminds us that any trouble that we might face, any persecution that we might, real persecution, not imaginary internet persecution, but real persecution that we might experience is nothing 
in light of the surpassing worth and glory of Jesus. In times of trouble, look to Jesus. 2020, man, that stunk. Good riddance. Hallelujah, it's 2021. And we got five accident-free days. 2020 and last Wednesday, however, have done us a favor. The events of our time have revealed the nature of the fractures that exist among God's people. I'm not talking about the world. It's not my concern right now. I'm talking about God's people. I'm talking about the church. And the events have revealed the fractures that exist among God's people. Fractures have always existed among God's people. It's just that they have usually developed along theological fault lines. For instance, in the early days of church history, the theological fault line of Christ himself produced the fractures. Was he God? Was he a man? Was he both? Is he the God? Is he another God? And Christianity was defined by the fractures. In the 1500s, the fault line was the nature of the church. Does the church dispense salvation? Or is salvation a product of grace through faith? And Christianity was defined by the answers developed along those fractures that came from the theological fault line of the church. When I was a young man, the theological fault line was the Bible. Is the Bible true in all it reports and teaches? Is it authoritative? Is it trustworthy? And Christianity was defined along the fractures that developed from that theological fault line. But in the 2020s, the fault lines are no longer theological. They are ideological. What are your thoughts on COVID? Is systemic racism real? Was the election stolen? And Christianity is being defined by the fractures that... What? What? Are you kidding me? You think, well, Derek, you're overstating it. Listen, folks, people have left Blue Valley this year based on the answers they've gotten or not gotten to those questions. It's defining ideological differences are defining Christianity today. The reason Christianity is floundering in America has nothing to do listen to me, has nothing to do with external forces and has everything to do with our focus. We've lost sight of the Lamb who was worthy because He was slain and formed a kingdom that's different, that makes you an exile from disparate cultures based on ultimate allegiance to Him and no one else. He's not prioritized. It's not Jesus, then this and this. It's Jesus. Anything else is treason. And the reason we're floundering is because we've lost that. 
The reason Christians are scared in America today has nothing to do with external forces and everything to do with our focus. We've lost sight of the Lamb who was worthy because He was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. It is a tragedy that Christianity is being defined along ideological fault lines. It grieves God that it is. And so last Wednesday and all of 2020 has done us a favor. It's shown us in who we really trust and in what we really trust. Let's burn our petty ideological and partisan idols. They've clearly failed us on every level. And to remain attached to the labels makes no biblical sense. Any label that you attach to yourself or that I attach to myself that is earthly is going to blow off on the way up or burn off on the way down. So let's live like citizens of a kingdom that will never end by keeping a laser focus on the king. We've been on our little razoo. We thought there was the way home. It's really there. Now that we've figured it out, let's walk. In the name of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.